Hi, everyone, and welcome to Commitment Matters. Loretta Salzano is my guest today. She founded the law firm of Franzen and Salzano in 1997 to provide practical legal solutions for mortgage companies and other consumer lenders. The firm quickly grew to serve banks, real estate brokers, title companies, law firms, technology companies, and others in the real estate marketplace. So while she is a highly accomplished attorney, particularly with regard to TILA, RESPA, ECOA, HMDA, and GLB, for the purposes of today's podcast, she's not your attorney. So please don't confuse this with legal advice. Rather, enjoy the perspectives of someone who has been in the trenches on all of these matters and is sharing those experiences and resulting thoughts with you. In this episode, we cover the current landscape of RESPA Section 8 enforcement, hot topics within the larger conversation of marketplace compliance, advertising and marketing in today's RESPA world, and we also do a lightning round of RESPA red flag scenarios and also green light scenarios. Loretta's experience is impressive, and we are thrilled to bring you her insights into some of the things that matter most to your business. Please enjoy my conversation with Loretta Salzano. Loretta, I know you do compliance on many, many different matters, but to me, you're the RESPA queen. So thank you and welcome to the podcast. That's my favorite title. (laughs) Your crown's on its way. (laughs) Okay, so the first thing I have to jump in and ask you about is I had thought that the days of kind of a push for affiliated business arrangements was gone and that sort of the ones we had existing that were healthy were going to survive, but it really seems like there's a renaissance in this area and that our agents are being asked again to sort of set up JVs again and affiliated business arrangements. So since it's apparently all the rage again, what are some of the pitfalls that agents need to stop and think about before they sort of jump in with both feet on one of these? Right on. So the first thing is just the economic of it, right? Obviously, as a lawyer, I'm helping our clients think about the legal issues, but sometimes they're so excited to jump at the opportunity or they're maybe desperate or they're hoping to garner business from a new referral source. So they don't really think about the economics right out of the gate. And there's no mandatory ownership interest or split for a joint venture title agency. But oftentimes, sharing the love can cost as much as 50%. So anyone who's already got a strong business relationship and a strong referral source has to think about, am I really willing to give up half of my premium? Especially in some states where that's where most of the agent's income comes from, not a closing fee. So that's the first issue out of the gate. And thinking about how doing the joint venture or not doing the joint venture might affect the capture. In some of those scenarios, they might have a lot to lose and not too much net new gain, right? If the relationship's already established. Right. And I mean, it it could be that the broker says, I'll take my business elsewhere if it's a broker. If it's a builder, the builder's going to have more ability to drive that business. But sometimes the business is really coming from the agents, right? Not from the broker. So that's added kind of a new flavor, a new wrinkle to this where agents are invited to the party too as owners. But I think the biggest pitfall right away is to just think about the economics. What's it going to mean to your 
business doesn't make economic sense to start. And then if you run the numbers and you think it does, then you have to make sure that your joint venture partner is going to buy into your culture of compliance or that they really are going to ante up the money and that they're going to have the same risk tolerance that you have. Oh, say more about that because we see some of those issues, don't we? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, people don't even think they have to pay the money. You know, maybe they want 50% of the interest, but they don't want to contribute 50% of the capital. Or maybe you don't both have the same sense of what it's going to cost to get the business venture off the ground and how best to staff it to ensure excellent customer service and to ensure that you don't run afoul of RESPA or any state law issues. So that's another issue. And then thinking about, well, shoot, who's going to staff it? Are you going to have to give up your best employees because that's who this counterparty wants to work with? And what's that going to mean for your other business and how you serve other clients? So those are practical considerations right out of the gate, besides the legal issues that you have to think about. I don't think it's that hard to build a compliant ABA when it comes to the three requirements for the safe harbor under the law, right? Giving the disclosure, no required use, and making sure the money goes the right way. Sometimes we have few about the money. And again, it's oftentimes related to really what should come off of the top as expenses. And then thinking about how you as an existing successful title agent is going to be asked to support that new venture as the expert is the referral source going to want you to do that for free. So that's a challenge. Sometimes we see people want to start a title agency with a lot of different agents. As I said, real estate agents, not just a real estate broker. And that raises some legal risk, but also practical challenges because you can't be monkeying with the percentage of distributions or ownership based on what people send to the venture. So sometimes I'll hear, we're going to get a big group and we're going to have different lenders and different uh, real estate brokers and different builders. And we're going to all form this title agency together. And it's all kumbaya at the beginning. But then think about when someone has a down month or someone is sick or someone checks out or leaves the industry if someone else is going gangbusters and people aren't going to feel comfortable just getting their ownership share, even if that might have seemed fair when they started. So that's another business issue that raises a legal issue and is a pitfall. Oh, yeah, that's a good point because if their balance that they can contribute to the business changes for whatever reason, then it could start to feel like they were a bit of a free rider if somebody else is still kind of pulling their weight. Exactly. So you want to think about an exit strategy, but you're not going to be monkeying with those percentages of ownership interest. You can't do it. What has to happen instead is that you're going to have to have a separate legal entity and a separate compliant title agency for every referral relationship in essence. And I love that you mentioned the culture of compliance. I know one of the concerns I had a million years ago when these were all the rage the first time, I actually, for an agency that I work for, set up an ABA in a new market. And one of the first questions I had for the prospective partners was, tell me what type of preferred treatment you're going to be expecting. If that's a choice closing time, that's one thing. But if you're going to ask me to waive a requirement, and the parenthetical part of that was because you don't quite understand what we do in the way that we understand what we do, you know, that's going to be a no. And so if you're in an ABA with a lender or a realtor who may not understand what some of those things are, I think you have to really establish up front the ground rule of when it comes to title and settlement, I know what I'm doing and you have to trust my judgment and we're not going to be able to waive things and do things just because we're in partnership together, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's true. 
And there are also issues, you know, you raise lender joint ventures, and there are lots of states that have capture limitations on business that comes from the affiliated business arrangement. And those oftentimes, they're in some states, impact lenders more than joint ventures with real estate brokers, depending on how things work and how your business is generated. So that's another thing to think about. It might not even make sense. Or in some states, like my state of Georgia, there's a prohibition on new title agencies with certain financial institution owners, depository institutions that are owners. So before you go running ahead and forming an entity, you need to think about the states where you're going to get your business and does it make sense from a legal standpoint and then work through how that might impact the parties you participate with. But it's interesting. A lot of times people will call me and they say, we want to have a joint venture. What about a joint venture and it's with a new relationship. And that's a pretty darn big investment when you think about complying with the best practices. So I mentioned the three statutory requirements and I know you know those and it's relatively simple, I think, Mm -hmm. to comply with those. But Mm -hmm. in a changing enforcement environment that we see coming down the pike through the CFPB, which will set the tone for states and other regulators we've already seen. And with more state legislatures seeking to to curb affiliated businesses, it might not be enough to just comply with those three statutory requirements and the bare bones of state law. So we always suggest that our clients comply with that old HUD policy statement from back in the 90s. Remember the 10-factor test about whether you have a sham. At the time, it was called the controlled business arrangement. And so we always try to shoot to get those 10 factors some of which are more important than others. I tell people out of the gate, if this is a new referral source and you think you're going to get a certain amount of business, great. But I wouldn't even think about starting a joint venture title agency unless you have enough work for one dedicated employee who's going to have the skill set to manage that practice and to do the work in the weeds. I hear all the time, well, can we share an employer? Can we have a part-time employer? Can we have someone who answers the red phone one way and the blue phone another way? You know, there's nothing in RESPA that says you have to do that. And certainly some courts have held that that policy statement doesn't have the force of law, but it's just prudent and good practice. And you don't want to have the knock on your door and have to defend it. You want to make sure that it's adequately capitalized and that you do have a good foundation with staff that is dedicated to the venture before you get out of the gate. And if you don't think it's worth the money when you run the numbers based on the volume you get and cut it in half because you're never going to get the volume you think you're going to get at least out of the gate then maybe start with something else, you know, maybe start with a marketing service agreement, or maybe start with uh, leasing some space in that office and getting familiar with those folks and seeing who really is going to bring the business your way. And if it's going to make sense for you to expand into something that's going to have a higher cost of entry and a tougher exit strategy. And coming back to what you were mentioning, circling around back to both the operational considerations, revenue considerations, and then the state compliance. For those states that do have a percentage mix of business requirement, you can have a prospective partner. And certainly if it's a new relationship, they can say, yes, I can contribute 50% to the bottom line. Well, then let's say your marketing goes really great externally. And all of a sudden you're getting a lot more referral sources in from outside of the JV. Then you can just slip right out of those percentages almost without realizing it. 
and suddenly you're violative of your state requirements, right? It's always going to be better under RESPA and the state laws to go out and get business from people who aren't in the arrangement. But oftentimes the way the joint ventures are branded, they're branded with the name of the referral source, right? I mean, they want to market and harness the value of that brand so they have the same name. And sometimes that too can make it more challenging to get business elsewhere, to comply with another one of those 10 factors and to make the states happy. Not to mention that profit margins in the title business aren't that great. And so when you start thinking about divvying them up, the pie can get very thin very quickly. I'm sure you have clients that have experienced that. And you know, the other thing I'll see sometimes is when you talk about the margins, especially my state of Georgia, that's an attorney closing state, of course, you still have to have a law firm close the loan. So you have to bifurcate the whole process and figure out what's going to happen at the title agency that works for state law and works for RESPA and what's going to have to happen at the law firm and how that's going to make sense economically. And oftentimes there is a lot of tension between that and a lot of tension with the referral source about how things are going to be staffed and where it's appropriate to cut costs and where it isn't. So oftentimes I'll see the referral source, especially when it's a real estate broker and not a lender who doesn't have another interest in keeping costs low, the broker will say, well, just pay attorney, just increase your closing fee. You're worried about losing this money or you're worried about how it's going to be staffed or we don't want to pay that off the top of the line and you're worried about losing the money. So just increase your closing fee. Well, that's a concern too, right? I mean, you don't want consumers to bear the brunt of higher fees, higher prices, or heaven forbid, some kind of an allegation of steering or a UDAP or a Fair Housing Act violation because certain consumers are getting charged more in order to facilitate or funnel this feedback to the referral source through the affiliated business arrangement. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think another consideration too has got to be JVs are always the bell of the ball when business is hot, which it is right now. But I think an important upfront discussion with a prospective partner also is, and how will you feel in four five years from the market, if the market's cool again, many years, we don't make a profit in this business. We work through the feast and the famine and it all kind of evens out. So how would you feel about writing a check during those years where we're not profitable? I think that's probably a very good barometric question for what their appetite really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And I see it because we represent all different kinds of settlement service providers. Sometimes I see the JV requests come in fast and furious when things are slower because the settlement agents are hungrier, right? Oh, sure. Figuring out what am I going to do? I have the staff. How am I going to keep them busy? How am I going to capitalize on the relationships that I have? So maybe sometimes they feel like they might be forced to do it or other people who are hungrier are putting it out there. So even law firms that have longstanding healthy relationships with real estate brokers then get the ask, well, so-and-so is going to do this for me. And there's always all kinds of scuttlebutt about how so-and-so is doing it. And of course, so-and-so is doing it with monkeys in a room, right? typing the policies and that's all that's happening and there's no overhead. With pixie dust. Right. And they're not spending anything. Everything's just perfect over there in that world. And it is hard because most people don't look at this. In a lot of states, there are a few states where the office of the insurance commissioner really pays attention to joint venture title agencies. And as we know, real estate brokers aren't subject to normal periodic exams. And they have a very strong lobby. 
If you're looking at a joint venture between a law firm or settlement agent and a real estate broker, the chances of anyone taking a look at that are relatively low. Now, granted, we had the consent order with Lighthouse. It was a small regional provider and the CFPB whacked them in connection with their MSAs and that got people's attention because it was a smaller provider. But generally, small providers who aren't subject to normal periodic exams probably aren't going to get on the radar. It's hard to tell clients they should do the right thing when they see everyone running with the lemons jumping off of the cliff, you know, why shouldn't they follow? And oftentimes they might see that the economics of non-compliance make more sense. But that's always the case with RESPA Section 8, right? Anything we see, there's always somebody out there paying cash in a brown paper bag or whatever it is. You have to do what's right for you based on your assessment of the risk and your risk appetite. And I always feel like at least if you can look a regulator in the face and justify it, that you're satisfying the three criteria and the rest of it isn't truly a sham, you're in a good spot. Unfortunately, we've had some cases come out that are pretty bad cases where the courts ignored the absence of timely disclosures. And I think those bad holdings just give more fodder to bad actors and make it hard for those of us who are towing the line to try to do the right thing. That's true. For those of our listeners who have been heads down just producing the work that's in front of them and maybe haven't been able to keep up on recent events as they normally would or would like to. Let's talk about the Lighthouse case a little bit. Can you just sort of brief that out for listeners so they can understand where the bright lines and less bright lines were in that one? That was different in that that was a marketing service agreement. And I think that the parties tried to structure something that was compliant. The CFPB was pretty aggressive thinking that just the mere fact of the agreement was a problem, which isn't true. And the CFPB took some smoking gun emails that were, I think, of the nature that, look, our competitors are going to pay this amount. And if we don't pay that, that means we're going to be left behind. So there was not a true assessment of the services that were to be provided and the value. And then the amounts paid fluctuated with referrals. Now, the CFPB also said, oh, gosh, look, you know, after this relationship, then after this marketing service agreement, Lighthouse got a lot more work. Well, of course, that's how marketing is supposed to work. So it just shows you how absurd that consent order was in many ways. But it did have some telling hints about where there is risk, even in something that might be papered correctly. And I tell clients that all the time, you know, we can help with a compliant marketing service agreement, a compliant marketing plan, advertising agreement, promotional activities, all of those things. But if the emails, or the conversations or the interviews say something else, you're going to be dead in the water. And I see that over and over. I see it where we have clients that have marketing service agreements with brokers and then the broker will introduce the law firm, for instance, to the agents and say, use this law firm. They do a great job and they pay us to refer. I'm like, oh my God, no, they don't pay you to refer. The messaging is really important and we train our clients to train their frontline staff on really what's happening and what the messaging is. And we urge them to train the counterparties because it's important that it's a builder, a broker, an agent, a lender, that they 
understand what's happening. Is it a joint venture? Is it a marketing agreement? Is there a lease? Is it a desk rental? I've heard about desk rentals or leases where an examiner will come in or an investigator and they'll ask to see whomever it is who's supposed to be sitting in that chair. It's usually a branch office of a lender and they'll ask to see the loan originator and the real estate team will say, oh my gosh, we haven't seen her in a year. Who is that again? Right. (laughs) Maybe they're paying to be there, but do they ever show up? You know, is it a ruse? And I always tell our clients right out of the gate, you know, to think about what's the storyline? What's the narrative? Why are you doing this? It can't be to pay for referrals or if it's an affiliated business arrangement, it's okay to say because we want to increase business from this channel. We're going to work together. But you have to think about what it is you're going to say and think about the business justification for it. Anything outside of ABAs. Gratefully, with affiliated business arrangements, it contemplates referrals. That's the whole idea, right? It's a safe harbor when entities that are related are referring. So you don't have to pretend that it's for something other than referrals like you do if you're in a marketing agreement or a lease or a desk rental or engaging in other normal promotional and educational activities. So I'm wondering if I'm an agent, I've been approached, I just am concerned about, yeah, we can have it papered right, but I'm not sure if operationally, practically, it's going to walk like the right duck, or I'm just not sure I have the margins to give away. I'm not sure that this agent can up their referrals to me or not. So for those who are just hesitant about that, what are some alternatives that they might be able to offer a broker or a builder or lender who has approached them? What are some other things that can be offered? offered there. Sure. So the first one I've already mentioned, the most common one I think is marketing service agreements. And as you know, those two are a hot topic and always have been with varying degrees of popularity. The CFPB issued their FAQs about RESPA Section 8 in October, and those made it very clear that marketing service agreements are correct when done right. And they gave us a little bit of confirmation about things that have been best practices. So marketing agreements, we don't have to be worried about that being a dirty word. A long time ago, folks changed the language to be advertising agreements, which is totally ridiculous and immaterial. It's still the same old thing, right? A rose by any other name. And the tenants are the same. You can't pay someone to refer, but you can pay for bona fide marketing, ideally to the general public, which is what the CFPB beat its drum on in these FAQs. It's prohibited through guidance to pay someone to put those marketing materials in a consumer's hand. CFPB and HUD thought, and I think the CFPB still thinks that agents have some special voodoo power over their clients. And so you don't want to pay them to distribute your materials, but you can pay them to display them. It shouldn't be anything that's directed to a consumer to influence that consumer's choice about a service they're going to pay for. But it's fine to pay for a whole host of things like display of marketing collateral in offices, getting your information signage up. You could be on the video kiosk. You can be on the on hold message. You can ideally, and the biggest ticket items are marketing collateral at listings. So you can have the title agent's signage up maybe. I think that's less common in the title industry than in the lending industry, but certainly you can have marketing collateral and business cards displayed inside homes that people are visiting. You can 
have your brand and a link on a website, you want to make sure it's clear that's an advertisement and you're paying for it. There are a whole host of things you can do under a marketing service agreement. I see oftentimes that people combine with their marketing agreement, what I think of really as sponsorships. And those are internal marketing activities. We know from the CFPB and HUD, they like these marketing activities to be directed to the public and not just to the agents or to the employees of the builder or the agents or employees of the real estate broker. So instead of paying for this internal marketing, which does have a value, and we see folks like MLink will assign a value to that, and they're not lawyers advising you on what's risky. So certainly something that can have a big pop. But instead, I suggest that if you want to market in that way, think of it instead as a sponsorship. You know, we were just talking about NS3. And there are sponsorship categories, right? To be a gold sponsor, whatever, silver, what you get. You get your name in the programs. You get your name on the website. You get your name and the invitations. You get signage at the event. You get tickets to attend. If you're thinking about this as a sponsorship for an event, I think that that helps and you can justify the value. And ideally, whatever that event is would include people other than the agents and employees. But if not, I still think, again, getting back to this sort of, could you look a regulator in the face and justify it? Absolutely. Because there's nothing in RESPA that says that you can only pay for marketing that's to the general public. There's nothing in RESPA says you can't pay for internal marketing. We just know from, gosh, I don't know, I've had the law firm for almost 25 years and it's been 25 years that we've seen through investigations, examinations, consent orders, the regulators don't like it. So why poke the bear, right? Try to set up something that you can demonstrate the promotional consideration you get for what it is that you're giving separate and distinct from referrals. That's been a very effective tool that we've been able to use when we have to defend generally with federal regulators, these types of promotions. You know, why did you pay the $500 for the meeting? Or what were you paying for $1,000 a month? And to show, gosh, you know, here's a picture of our sign. Here's the invitation at this event. So that's very popular. And it kind of dovetails with another exception in the law for normal promotional and educational activities. RESPA does not prohibit normal promotional and educational activities if they satisfy two conditions. The first condition is that you can't do this activity whatever it is, whether it's a party or a gift or an event based on referrals. So you can't only invite the people who sent you business, right? It can't be based on referrals and you can't offset a cost that a referral source would otherwise incur, which is why you can't pay for attendees CLE credit if they would have to pay to file those credits. You can have a lunch and learn, you can give them this great information, you can promote your brand, but you can't pay something they would already have to pay, which is why I don't like to see a title agent just pick up the catering bill or pick up the bar bill because it looks like then you're offsetting something they would otherwise pay. This works for all kinds of things, normal promotional educational activities. It works for events that you might host at a ballpark and you invite the first hundred people who sign up through the board of realtors. It might be that you have a golf outing and you invite all of the agents who have a listing in the zip code where your office sits. So clearly it's not based on referrals and you have an opportunity then to be with them to talk about how fabulous you are and how you're the best closer around and everything will go smoothly and they'll be able to sleep at night and all their deals were closed. 
or with builders. But you have to be really careful about who you're inviting to these events because we've seen the state examiners really digging in, especially on happy hours and spa days, asking to see the list of everyone who's invited and saying, well, let's see who sent you business. Are these all the people who sent you business and only the people who sent you business? And we have seen regulators or even competitors force compliant promotional activities to cease just because of the risk of the competitor tattling or a state examiner just taking a hard line that, well, we just don't like it or we really don't believe that it was first come, first serve. So you have to be sensitive to that. Another thing that falls within a normal promotional activity is taking people out for meals, right? Taking someone out to lunch, taking somebody out to dinner. We have seen investigations on the lending side for a cup of coffee. It's crazy where a loan originator was taking an agent out for coffee every single week. So I always joke, I think they were just having an affair. But whatever it was going out once a week, you don't want to time it. So it's a thank you, right? After every closing, the lawyer takes the agent out to lunch. Instead, you want to make sure it's not a thank you. It's a way to promote activity. So you want to keep that funnel full. You want to invite out people that has never sent you business. It's a great way to form new relationships. Maybe when you add some to your team, take them out to meet lots of people and you entertain that way, take people to a ball game, the same thing. Don't send the tickets, don't send a gift card to the restaurant. You need to use this as an opportunity to shine your light and introduce yourself Trade was a great opportunity. The law changed. Wow. We're subject matter experts. Let us tell you how we can help, whether it's through a lunch and learn or taking people out and holding their hand, talking them off the ledge. You don't have to be scared. We've got you. Again, another great opportunity for a normal educational event. The good thing about those is they're warm and fuzzy. The bad thing is they're not a big ticket item for somebody who's got their hand out for an ADA. The exception for goods, facilities, and services that gives us the opportunity to pay for marketing and advertising gives us an opportunity to pay for leases or rentals or office space or desk rental. Again, if it's legitimate, but you have to be able to justify why you're doing it. You always want to make sure it's fair market value rent. And in a declining rental environment, it might not be fair market value rent to pay. Yeah, you have to keep your finger on the pulse of what the fair market value is, because if it hasn't changed in your commercial market yet, it's going to. That's right. So, you know, people say, well, I'm just paying pass-through rent. I'm just paying what, you know, the real estate broker pays. Well, if you could go across the street and get that same kind of space for half as much, it won't be fair market value. And of course, this isn't like retail space when you're selling shoes and you have to give part of your profits to the landlord, right? You can't take that into consideration, what kind of business you're going to get because of the traffic there. You have to just think about how much would that comparable space cost where you don't have the traffic from the agents and from their clients. Yeah, I guess those would be the things we hear about most frequently. Sometimes I see title providers try to shoehorn into some kind of a lead gen or we're buying leads or we're buying customer contacts. But I think that's a stretch. I think it would be hard to justify that from a business perspective based on how people in the title industry market and especially in attorney closing states where there are a lot of laws limiting how attorneys advertise. It just doesn't really make sense. Our title agents get asked that frequently. In fact, uh, at the end here, I want to do sort of a recap lightning round of specific questions I've been asked recently. Oh, great. And that's going to fall in one of those because they are getting asked frequently. 
especially not exclusively, but oftentimes the people asking for that assistance are like refi centric lender shops. And so that puts a lot of pressure on an agent to figure out if that's a space they can play in or not. And I heard from agents who've said, a lender told me, if you don't give me referrals, we're not happening with you. And that just puts everybody in such a bind. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. And there have been settlements about that with the CFPB about providing customer lists or referrals. And, you know, the hard thing is the whole world works on you send me business, I'll take care of your customers and I'll send you business and know you'll take care of mine. But even that is a RESPA Section 8 violation, that quid pro quo or that mutual referral arrangement, which is preposterous. Because that's the way the world works. That's exactly right. And obviously, you know people you do business with, right? You know, I know people from meetings or transactions. Gosh, those are trusted referees that I would gladly send business to. And part of that knowledge, oftentimes, I'm not in the settlement service business, but it certainly comes from my business. And it's the same with people in a settlement service. If you're a closing agent and you see all the happy customers whose loan originators are with them every single time, you see the people who are buying homes without a snag and their agents got their back, you know, those are people who are going to do a good job and you know it because they've sent you business because you're sitting in the room with them. That doesn't mean you have an agreement or understanding for it, but sadly, you don't need to have a formal written agreement to have a RESPA violation, right? It's an agreement or understanding for the referral of business. And even one referral can be deemed to be established as pattern and practice sometimes, which I think is, again, preposterous, but it literally can't be a pattern if it's a one-time occurrence. Right, right. And even a pattern and practice, like if it's just organic, so what, right? I think that's Yeah, and that's very subjective. Well, I'll tell you, some of these lenders are so to the point with what they're asking. They'll tell the title agent, listen, I know you have sitting in your system, everybody that closed three years ago on an adjustable rate note is getting ready to adjust. So let me have that information and I'll send you the deals for everything that I farm out of there. And not only is that so wrong, and it opens up a whole other can of worms about the agent's data and that privacy, but also it's, it's violative of the agent's own privacy policy and the underwriter's own privacy policy, right? So there's so many things wrong with that. But part of what we have to do is tool agents up with how to have those conversations so that they can have very bright lines of, no, I can't. And here's why. You know, there are ways to buy data. I guess everything is hot, right? Everything trying to get out of a RESPA Section 8 violation is hot. And one of them is data sales. Gosh, back when our pal Grant Mitchell, the Respa King was with us. He issued several unofficial statements back in the day when HUD would respond to questions about whatever it is people wanted to ask. And there were lots of questions about buying a customer list, which is the exact example you posed, Mary. Is it okay for someone to sell a customer list? And Grant said, yes, that's okay, as long as the payment is really just for that list and it can't include an endorsement and the payment can't be based on business generated from that list. So people who want to buy data, if you can clear all the privacy hurdles and make sure you have appropriate consumer consents and depending upon who's selling the data and what their obligations are to consumers, obviously very different for financial institutions, title providers who are following L to best practices versus real estate agents who don't have those same duties. It's still important to manage consumers' expectations and to honor that trusted relationship. But even if you can clear those hurdles, really, are you just 
buying a list or a warm handoff or what really are you paying? You should be paying for every single name. You shouldn't be paying just when you get a deal. You can't pay just when you get a deal. And as you move closer and closer and look to milestones that are closer to actually issuing a title policy or closing a loan, closing that transaction, whatever it is, it's going to be harder to say you're just paying for the data so that you can then go take it and do your own marketing. Yeah, you got to stay on the right side of that. And nothing from a compliance aspect is trending toward more flexible, right? It's with one minor exception. You mentioned something that the CFPB and I think a lot of people have noticed a couple of things. One, maybe not as much enforcement coming out of the CFPB of late, and also perhaps states taking on a greater enforcement role without such a focus on it federally. Do you see that remaining the same with the new CFPB changing? Read us the tea leaves on that. Well, of course, we expect it to change. And while people don't always see what the CFPB is doing, right? That doesn't mean they're not doing it. There are lots of things that are happening behind the scenes. And those things were happening even under the Trump administration and even under Mulvaney and Craninger, although, of course, it was less prevalent because they weren't touting it the way Director Cordray did as a means to chill other activities. As we all know, right, regulation by enforcement. So we all believe there to be now an increase in regulation by enforcement under the acting director and certainly under the new director. When he was at the FTC, he did not hesitate to litigate. We understand pundits predict that personal liability is not something that's off of the table. So that's something else on the table for people to be concerned about. I don't think RESPA Section 8 is at the top of the hit parade for the CFPB but simply the change in tone there and regulator competition, I think is going to change the focus of all consumer protection agencies at the state and federal level. I can tell you that the FDIC, which is obviously not the regulator for probably most of your audience, but the FDIC warned depository institutions that this was going to be on their radar. And they have been going great guns looking at everything very aggressively in the weeds on MSAs, on promotional activity, on joint marketing, co-marketing, things that in the past these banks were doing without the FDIC batting and I. I can't say the FDIC has thrown the book at anyone yet, gratefully, but they are issuing prolific and lengthy questionnaires, asking all kinds of questions about all kinds of things and wanting to see all that collateral. Certainly, we have seen the states doing that through their own regulators, whether it's the insurance commissioner or the departments of banking and finance. We've seen state legislatures taking a harder line in attempting to implement laws. Gratefully, most of those are being thwarted on the affiliated business arrangement side, and we haven't seen them proposed for other arrangements, but we've definitely seen those regulators looking longer and harder at referral arrangements. And sometimes it's just as a result of how much business someone's garnering. We've seen some states forming mini CFPBs, right? Pennsylvania, California, Massachusetts has always had its own, almost mirrors a lot of the federal laws. So the states are getting more aggressive by staffing up. And we already know the CFPB is staffing up. So 
this could be caught in their net when they're looking at something else. So I think it's smart to pay attention and to have your ducks in a row. It doesn't mean you can't do things. While some predict that the CFPB will try to forge new ground in certain areas, and we know that correcting racial and social inequities is high on their list, I don't really expect that to play into expanding their reach of Section 8 like we did with Cordray, who was pretending that you couldn't even pay a referral source for legitimate goods, facilities, and services. And the court blasted him on that, and that did not stand. So I don't think that they're going to push the envelope on Section 8 of RESPA as far as trying to change the law, but that doesn't mean they won't take a closer look at what's happening and maybe even seek to enforce some of the tenants that were pronounced in the FAQs from October. Yeah, well, that's generally how it goes. We told you what the rules of the road were. Now we're going to go check to make sure you're following. So all the more reason to keep your nose clean and stay on the right side of all this, especially with the increased scrutiny that you mentioned at the state levels and those sorts of things. Okay, I'm not to the lightning round yet, but one common question that has a lot of confusion around it is gift giving. So let's talk about when is it okay? When is it not okay? Is it okay if it's to the consumer? Give us the down and dirty on that, would you? Gift giving is a normal promotional activity, right? That's something we all do as a way to promote our brand. So that means it's subject to those same two conditions that I talked about, like any other event or meals, marketing through meals, sports tickets, entertainment. And so it can't be conditioned on referrals and you can't offset a cost someone would otherwise incur. So you don't want to sense someone their cell phone, even if it has your brand on it, right? You want to think about something else. And you don't want to send it only as a thank you to a referral source. Now, I think it's fine to send a thank you to a consumer for doing business with you. And you want to make sure that when you're doing that, there are so many cool things you can do to consumers that help promote your brand too. Like I hear about settlement agents who send a limousine to the buyer's home and they roll out the red carpet and they drive them to the closing. Or maybe the day after the closing, they send a big bouquet of flowers and balloons. That starts a conversation that's marketing. Can we still have champagne in the closing room? Hell yeah. Only if you invite me. Okay, good. (laughs) So things that are for the consumer, that's all great, but make sure you don't share credit with the referral source. And if you do, you better divide the cost. So if you're paying for the limo and you're saying, you know, thanks from us and the agent, the agent better ante up the cost. And the same with that big bouquet. If it costs 200 bucks to send it and it says, thank you from Mary and Loretta, your agent, Loretta better ante up 50%. With other gifts, I think that if you're sending holiday gifts, like lots of people do, seasonal gifts to all kinds of people, and those people include referral sources, I think you're going to be fine generally. You don't want to send the Dom Perignon in your champagne example to the agent who sends you the big ticket closings or the most closings and the Andre champagne. You you want to make sure that whatever you're sending, it doesn't fluctuate in value based on who sends you business, right? And then also, I think it's always helpful if the gift is branded with your brand because that shows it is something promotional. So those Yeti cups are an awesome gift. People love them. And if your brand is on it, I think that that is going to minimize your risk to almost nothing. Well, and in your holiday gift example, or it's March example, whatever it is, I would think that a way to keep pretty clear on some of this is not only send it to the people that do business with you, but also some prospective agents 
if you change your mindset from this is a thank you to this is marketing and that's for existing and prospective clients, then you can start to get a little bit more clear on the right side of things. Is that fair? Absolutely. And it's awesome. You know, we know a law firm here and at the holidays, they send the gift card and everyone waits for it. All the agents wait for it. They send it to every single agent who's, I don't know if they do it based on who's had a listing in the geographic area they serve or if they do it based on licensees with that address in the offices, but it goes to every single person. And it's an expensive gift when you're doing it for every single person, but it sure gets their brand out there. And I can tell you, it gets their competitors fur up too. And that's always just a bonus. Well, maybe. Sometimes it's a bonus. We had a client that's a title agent and they were in the New Orleans area. It was after Katrina and they had this super cool campaign and they sent a really cool invitation package with little tchotchkes, all things that were like trinkets and trash, which would be okay as a normal promotional activity. And they had their brand in it and they invited the first 100 100 agents who signed up to go on. It was a, like a trolley tour through the areas that were ravaged by Katrina. And it was a lender with its affiliated title agent. And they talked about here are the ways uh, products and services we can offer to help you get people in these homes or loans. or So it was a way to get a captive audience to hear their message and do something fun. It was first come, first serve. Everyone got the invitation, whether they did business or not. And it wasn't like they billed them later if they never sent a deal. It was a great promotion. But so many people saw it who were competitors and had sour grapes. And I got a call from a plaintiff's attorney. Oh. He said, I know you represent this company and we're going to rat them out unless you stop it. And I had not helped them with the campaign, but I called them and I talked to them and everything they were doing complied with RESPA and it was all above board. But they decided just to pull it because they didn't want to risk the investigation because we all know, sadly, that even if you're not doing anything wrong, sometimes a regulator will think where there's smoke, there's fire. If enough people complain, they might go and look and that's going to be expensive to lawyer up or make sure everything else in your shop is perfect because none of us is perfect all of the time. So regulators might cast a wider net then or they might start examining other parts of your operation or asking other questions. So uh, sadly, even though that was a super cool promotion, they just decided to pull the plug on it before the event happened because of that risk. Yeah. Well, that makes total sense. Okay. Are you ready for lightning round? I'm ready. Do I need a buzzer? Maybe. Yeah. Buzz in. I'm the only player. <laughs> you're you're going to win, Loretta. I promise. <laughs> so some of these you've touched on either at a higher level, and I'm going to drill down on them. Some of you've touched on them specifically, but these are questions we get. So is it okay for a builder or an other bulk seller, frequent seller, whatever you want to call them, to give a discount on the, say, the sales price if it's a new build, if the buyer agrees to go with title company X and lender Y? That's fine. An economic incentive is okay. And an economic incentive is okay, even in the context of a seller and a title agent. So we know that's a section nine issue under RESPA. And also in the context of an affiliated business arrangement, that's okay. As long as it's truly an economic incentive and it's not something that's made up elsewhere or it looks like it's really a discount or a credit or a new countertop, but really something else is inflated. So those things are generally okay. And it's for consumers to look at the dollars and decide if it works. Sometimes we even see the flip side, there's a penalty. You don't apply with someone or you don't close on on time or if you decide you're going to close with someone else and it falls through, then you have to pay a certain amount a day. That's the 
holistic approach, which is not as nice, but we see that too. Similar question. When you have a bank REO seller, is it okay if they, as the seller, require the use of a specific title company? Maybe the one that did the foreclosure work on the front end or somebody they have a relationship with or... Eh, that's a red light. No, nope, you can't do that. And it's because of section nine of RESPA. So if the buyer is going to be paying for the service, and this is tied to title insurance. So that's a little different than that's prohibited. If the bank is going to pay the fee, which I can't imagine they would for the title insurance policy for the buyer, but if they were, you know, as an incentive or a way to get the home sold, then that would not be prohibited. Then they could pick whomever it is they like, but it's prohibited by RESPA for a seller to require the use of a title company for the insurance if the buyer is going to pay. First time home buyer seminars, where if you're a title agent and you have a realtor wanting to offer a first time home buyer seminar and you maybe have a lender there, so you're going to educate prospective first time buyers about how the process works and you're there and you're going to give them some wine and some catering and that sort of deal and teach them about how the process goes. So that's a normal promotional and educational activity. And I think in this case, it's ideal because you're doing it for first time home buyers, right? Maybe you're all there together. Now, if it's something that maybe you all chip in for the refreshments and that's fine, but I think you want to just be sensitive to you're not offsetting a cost of an event that's just like the realtor event. So if the realtor is really putting this on and it's $5,000 and you're picking up the whole tab, then maybe someone would scratch the surface and say, well, that's a little more because you're offsetting the cost for this realtor who sends you most of your business. But I think generally, Generally, that kind of home buyer seminar and entertaining home buyers or educating home buyers about the process, whether it's a fair or a seminar, the home show, the builder show, those things, when you're really reaching the general public, I think are going to escape scrutiny generally. Now, this isn't for a specific real estate brokerage, but the Area Association of Realtors has a graduating class and you are invited to go speak to them about Title Settlement 101, what a commitment is, how a CDF works, what a closing process is like. Good? Oh, yeah, that's a great opportunity. And you're doing it for free. And I think even for that, if you want to sponsor the event or give out a raffle prize or something, that's good. The only thing I want to caution the audience about, which is a very peculiar thing that happened with a bank client of ours, they were engaging in training. And that's a way so that they can make sure that their consumers, their customers have a pleasant experience. And this was part of what they did. And they would pay to come and, you know, serve refreshments like a lunch and learn. The regulator said, well, why wouldn't the broker pay them to do it? Like if it's training, they'd have to go out and pay for training anyway. So we had to do a big explanation about content marketing and why it's important to go out just like I'm talking to you, you know, to promote myself as a content expert. And that that's what the loan originators are doing. That's what the closing agents are doing. They're going out and saying, look, I know my stuff. You should come to me. You should send your clients to me. You should know that I'm a trusted provider. But it was interesting that they thought, oh, well, you should pay for that training. So I caution you to think about what if the training is something other than what the speaker's business is. Maybe the closing attorney has some special knowledge in time management, sales, whatever. And they come in and they're going to give this training that they would go out elsewhere. I don't know. Maybe 
maybe someone would say they would go pay for that otherwise. But I think that's just another promotional and educational activity. And you're doing it through Board of Realtors. You do it through a professional association all day, every day. I think that you're going to be okay. What about if I rent the private dining room in a restaurant and I host a special dinner for the top 10 realtors in my marketplace? I think that's good. Top 10 realtors in your market. Absolutely. That's who you want. You know, it's interesting in that guidance from the fall from the CFPB, they do talk a bit about prospective referral sources, but that's what normal promotional activities are, right? Like you said, you're going to invite all different people because you want to introduce yourself to them and have them use you for your business. Why else would you market unless it's to get business? So you're going to want to talk to the top 10 agents in your market. Okay. Same private dining room, same restaurant. The next night, 10 agents who bring me the most deals. Well, you know, that's eh, right. That's a red light. Okay. What about it's the spring or summer parade of homes? They're open houses. The agents are sitting out there hosting these open houses and you come by with some nice snacks and cold drinks and maybe some flyers about your title company. Love it. I think that's awesome. You're branding yourself to the general public. You're at the point of sale, right? It makes sense. You're there where people are coming to learn about homes and you want to be in their corner to close that transaction. Ideally, those refreshments will have your brand on them. That makes it an even stronger argument from a compliance perspective. And certainly it helps to solidify the legitimacy of the marketing opportunity. Not that you're uh, writing the check for the Chick-fil-A nugget tray at the open house. Um, This one we touched on a little bit, but just for clarity, because I'm just imagining people taking frantic notes during this. this, What about sponsoring the annual realtor Christmas party? The realtor, like a real estate broker or for the the board of realtors? Let's say the board of realtors. Yeah, I think that that's fine. Again, because it's really not the board that's the referral source. It's a professional association and you're advertising your brand. And I think even with the real estate brokers holiday party, I get asked this question a lot around the holidays. And I know that a lot of times the marketing team for realtors will reach out to lots of folks they do business with and ask for sponsorships. And I think, again, if you can demonstrate the promotional consideration you receive, that will be helpful. Ideally, those events will have the same kind of marketing promotion package that a professional association would have that they say, here are the levels of sponsorship. Here's what you get, right? Gold, silver, bronze, so that you can say, look, here's what it is. And then you want to make sure that you really got that. You want to be able to put your money where your mouth is and show we walk the walk. Here's a copy of the invitation in the file with that check. Here's a copy of the program. Here's a picture of our banner. And even in an internal event, it's going to have other people in other communities, probably spouses and other business guests, friends, family members, maybe business leaders. And I think you can also make the argument that not everyone in that room sends you business. That's a great tip, by the way. And I'll bet a lot of folks aren't doing that is keep a file on each thing that you commit to doing and everything around that so that you don't have to sort of reconstruct it. If anybody asks, you just go to your file and here and you have somebody like you that walks through with whoever's looking and asking. 
that could save so much time and headache. Right. Absolutely. You know, we have one client that actually required a third party valuation for every single sponsorship. Now, I don't think that's necessarily necessary. And it certainly can be cost prohibitive to get a $2,000 evaluation for a $500 sponsorship. But if it's a big ticket item and it's an entity that does send you a lot of business and it's an internal event, then maybe it's worthy of consideration. The thing that we don't like to hang our hat on, but is truth, is that when you're being examined or investigated, there needs to be some evidence about a violation. And if it's a fixed amount that doesn't vary by referrals or business generated, it's going to be harder for a regulator to show that that's something that's illegal because it's hard to value those things. And no one knows really what they're worth. But if you have a fixed number and it's not fluctuating and everyone's paying the same thing, I just think the optics are different. And it's going to be harder for an examiner to make the case. And they're not going to try. They're going to take you at face value in our experience. If you can show, here's the flat fee, here's what it was. If you do have that file and you can say, yes, we didn't pay it for referrals. We paid it for promotional consideration. Here's what it was. I think that that will put that to bed pretty quickly. How about if a real estate brokerage, let's say their website is too expensive for them. They want some help paying for that from a title agent. What should the title agent think of with regard to that sort of digital marketing? I'm just using the website as an example. Sure, sure. Well, you know, digital marketing now expands beyond the web page. And I think a lot of the bigger value comes from social media. And so that's something we see a lot. And it's appropriate to have an ad and have a link and maybe have a picture of your settlement team there. And it should always be labeled as an advertisement so that it's clear that you're paying for it. And the challenge is figuring out what's fair market value. Again, just like with everything, it's okay to pay for goods, facilities and services, but they have to be bona fide and genuine and non-duplicative. And it's only the fair market value you're paying for. And it's okay to pay referral sources, but for those goods, facilities and services, the challenge is if you're paying more than fair market value, that excess might be deemed to be a payment for the referral. So you need to have some metric to hang your hat on. And with websites, I think it's pretty simple to go out into the marketplace and based on the demographics and the hits and the intelligence that's available, you can figure out what the market is. That's a basis. There are also, I mentioned MLink earlier. I think they are the most commonly used provider in our industry. They do a great job. They have been vetted in essence by the CFPB who looked at their model in another context, the context of MSAs and moved along. And they will value web postings. They'll value social media. They'll value these types of digital marketing. And it's tough because the digital marketing, as we know, it's not like putting an ad in the paper, right? You're going to get that link. And then maybe you get the remarketing that every time you're doing something, it pops up again. Oh gosh, you know, Mary was looking for a house and and now there's Loretta, the closing attorney. I'm following you all over (laughs) when you're trying to go on vacation, you're trying to buy shoes, whatever it is, you know, how you value that. I have no idea, but neither do the regulators. So I find oftentimes if you do have a calculation, a metric a mechanism, even if it isn't supported by a third-party valuation every time. 
but it's something that's based on circulation, demographics, impressions, the people you reach, I think you're going to be successful in defending that examination or investigation. Okay. How about a scenario where it's not at the broker's request, but let's say a title company after each closing, if they have the consumer's permission, posts a shout out on the Instagram, hey, we just closed Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They're so excited. Here's their new home courtesy or just a shout out to at Loretta Realtor. So that's free advertising and free advertising, even a like on Facebook, absurdly, is a thing of value. Now, do I really think someone's going to get in trouble for that? No, I think probably not. But, you know, technically it is a thing of value. Now, maybe not all of those agents referred the deal to you. Maybe they came to you some other way. That would be another argument you could make in defense Hey, we do this all the time as an acknowledgement of a transaction done well, the way we tout our firm and we do it for everyone. So that would be maybe an argument. It's not based on referrals, but it's still free advertising, but it's such a small thing. I think the thing to be more mindful of is the FTC advertising guides on endorsements, right? So if you're touting someone, you want to think about that too, even if it's um, you don't expect anything in return. And I think just to be safe, in your example of the likes, which is great, don't just like the realtors postings who send business to you like a lot of people's. That's exactly right. And think about reposting. That's another huge thing. Take a look at this great house. Make the message about you. Gosh, I'd love to help ease your closing and get you into a great new home. Or we've done more closings in this area, whatever you're touting yourself and then show like this house or something because you don't want to be engaging in licensable activity as a real estate agent, which you have to be sensitive to. You're not trying to get the house sold. You're trying to tout yourself. Okay. Two more. Okay. First one. Can I still take my XYZ branded post-it notes and pens out to a realtor's office and leave it on Tuesday morning when they have sales meetings? Please do. Just don't leave them with their own brand, right? You don't want to take someone else's brand because then you're offsetting your cost. You want to get your brand out there. And leaving those things, I think, all day, every day to all the sales meetings is a-okay. And finally. Same with donuts. You read my mind. The last pressing question is... And we still take the damn box of donuts to the realtor's office because <laughs> you know we won't See? stop that ever. Yeah, I think it's fine to take the donuts. You know, you're just taking them everywhere. Everybody gets donuts. I think that that's nice. You look at the map, you figure out how many targets you have to hit. It's not a thank you. And there you go. And maybe you do it on the last day of the month because, you know, everybody's in the office working fast and furiously or whatever the day is when people are there. I think it's fine to take the donuts. Put your business card on the top, staple it on the top. Get some napkins maybe with your logo on it to make it even cooler. But absolutely bring the donuts. That's so funny that you knew that was what was going to be my last question. They really still do that, you know? Yeah. Even in this low-carb craze. <laughs> and even with so many people not in offices, you know, that's a really tough thing is thinking about how the pandemic has changed marketing and changed the opportunities to market and changed the focus and thinking through how that impacts the valuations and money you're already paying for in-person meetings, which maybe is like a final thing for people to think about if they do have arrangements where they're paying now, did they keep paying? And I think there would probably be some grace there because we're all struggling with grace in contracts and working environments, business relationships through COVID. But that is a good tip to re-examine what you have in place already and see if it's applicable right now or if it's changed. And the other thing too, as we see people getting more creative with the marketing 
as you come up with these new outside the box ideas, always be looking at it with regard to RESPA and, and everything that's applicable and making sure that it factors as a good idea all the way around, right? That's right. And, you know, RESPA is just the tip of the iceberg, right? We talked about state laws, licensing laws, capture limitations, FTC guides on advertising, endorsements, and now another big thing. Look, we have a director, an incoming director at the CFPB who's coming from the FTC. What's that mean? Unfair and deceptive acts and practices. And put the other A in there, the abusive, because that's something that regulators regularly will use as an arrow in their quiver when they can't pin the violation on a precise technical law. Or they go to UDAP. Yep, we just go with UDAP. And the CFPB withdrew the guidance on abusive practices. And some people think that means they're going to want to establish some new ground there. So always go with the grandmother test, whatever you're doing, right? Think about, could this somehow be an unfair or abusive act or practice? Thanks, Loretta, for your insight into the ever-present, ever-challenging, and ever-timely topic of RESPA compliance. You always shed such great light in this arena. As always, listeners, you can find Loretta's contact information in the show notes of today's episode, as well as links to additional resources relevant to our conversation if you want to further your learning. Until next time, celebrate each closing you're a part of because you've played a very important part in what is a very big day in someone's life. Take a moment to find and thank that coworker who helps make your job easier, more interesting, or just more fun, because that's awfully important in maintaining your sanity. And always remember, and for sure, please know that I never forget that what you do really matters.